The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 30, Stranger Danger, Hiding Stevens and Russell. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. That Watergate was a journalistically impelled scandal, we can all agree. The Post is taking credit for uncovering the scandal of the Nixon administration criminality. It has thereby taken ownership of the conclusions of its journalism, and indeed has proudly claimed to have been a major actor in causing the ultimate result, Nixon's resignation, the only presidential abdication in American history. Please recall that the major wrongdoing of Oval Office executives was not commissioning the burglary, but rather covering up various aspects of it after the fact. Quote, the cover-up is worse than the crime, unquote, was a common trope beginning in the summer of 1973. So with this trope in mind, what if the Post, as a major player in the aftermath of the burglary, actively covered up key facts? What if, as the Nixon administration was found to have done, the Post covered up Watergate intentionally while possessing far more information about it than the clueless, head-scratching executives in the admittedly conspiratorial Oval Office? Granted, as a media member, the Post is not liable criminally for any willful and intentional factual distortion, as would be a government official. But it's the Post morally accountable if it failed to tell the real truth to the American public. I submit that the Post is, and think that doubtlessly most listeners would agree. Let me here insert a couple of weird but apt analogies. A brilliant young German scientist, Werner Heisenberg, at age 23, became one of the fathers of what we today call quantum physics, physics that is responsible for innovations from the nuclear bomb to cell phones and computers. One of his trenchant conclusions is known as the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. Although it's self-complicated, one part of the principle is that the observation of a subatomic system alters the system. By introducing a photon to view an electron, that photon changes the behavior of the electron. So, an unobserved system does not act as does an observed system. The post was the public's observer in Watergate. Now let me introduce another strand of traditional Western thought that bears upon Watergate and the post reporting of it in connection with the post role as the observer of Watergate. As Plato recounts a debate of Socrates, if a man could make himself invisible, would he act morally? Major Western thinkers, such as Cicero, Rousseau, H.G. Wells, Wagner, Tolkien, Ralph Ellison, and others, have accepted that if one is invisible, this is an irresistible temptation to immorality. So with all of this preface, to what extent did the post-hiding of Watergate truths make actors invisible and thus prone to immorality? And to what extent did false observations affect those observed? We have thus far spoken of various journalistic cover-ups by the Post of the intriguing facts of the burglary arrests, pointing to a target other than that which the Post postulated repeatedly in print, dealing not with campaign strategies but salacious interactions. We have described how the Post strained to conceal the Mullen cover contract and the seeming CIA agency of Hunt and McCord. And finally, we have in earlier episodes delved into the concealments of highly significant trial strategies, 
both of Hunt and the prosecution, both implicating the CIA and girls. Against this background of concealment, the Post published an explosive article cultivated by Deep Throat on October 10, 1972, relating Watergate to the Oval Office campaign of, quote, spying and sabotage, unquote. The program, run through young operative Donald Segretti, was, according to the Post, run out of the White House, and that reporting was correct. Deep Throat, or as we now know Mark Felt, wanted this article to excite public pressure to keep his investigation open and not curtailed artificially. So this explosive reporting into a wide open field with no hint of the CIA or naughty talk was impactful and put the White House and ironically FBI Director Patrick Gray on the defensive, given the seeming uninvestigated tie to the Oval Office. Meanwhile, because of the October reporting, the White House felt compelled to offer the permanent FBI directorship to interim director Patrick Gray. His confirmation hearings in late February 1973 were, in short, a disaster, as he unnecessarily implicated the White House counsel, John Dean, in the cover-up, theretofore an obscure player. All of this is background and prologue to the events that were about to sensationalize Watergate in late March 1973 in the wake of the early Gray hearings, and as sentencing for Lydian McCord was to occur in the courtroom of the stern jurist, Judge John Sirica. Let us discuss the position of the various actors in Watergate at this key inflection point. It is an important juncture because the Urban Committee hearings have not begun. A special prosecutor has not yet been promised, appointed, or even discussed. John Dean and Jeb Magruder had not yet turned prosecution witnesses, and Oval Office executives were still securely, it seems, in power. So let's talk about what had not yet been uncovered publicly in the scandal and how these undisclosed facts affected future actions of the key actors, including the Post. In doing so, let's go to March 23, 1973, the date of the sentencing of Liddy and McCord. Let's begin with James McCord. McCord, in our view, knows he has dodged any revelation by the Post of his pickup at the jail by Pennington. He knows also that the Post has ignored what it likely knows about his strategic jailhouse confession to Bittenbender in anticipation of an intercession by the CIA, which never came. He was obsessive in his December 1972 reports to the CIA about Bittenbender and wary of Hunt's pending CIA defense. But all of that passed without mention, in no small part, to the Post's failure to report any of this, including Silbert's planned blackmail theme. To McCord, public outing of the CIA, or lack of same, was his worry, not his own technical guilt, which his bosses at the CIA ordered him to accept with the face-saving caveat that he thought this was a national security operation for the White House. That the Post had thus far covered up for the CIA publicly meant everything. If the Post had not done so, or if McCord thought the Post might unwrap in the future, his course of action would have been more restrained. If there were credible reporting about the CIA's involvement, the White House would be strengthened and the CIA would need Oval Office support. An administration that survives this scandal in the face of CIA unwrapping against it would not be kind to intelligence agents that not only infiltrated the White House and the CRP that led to its near doom, but might also press its Justice Department to prosecute. So, for McCord to unwrap, he had to have confidence that nothing would erupt to spoil the hard-won cover-up of the agency. So in late March 1973, McCord made a strategic decision. 
because the Post had done such a good, if dishonest, job of pointing to the White House and away from the agency, and after Gray imploded, McCord calculated that he could rail against the White House and that the Post and Sirica would eat it up. So rail he did. But he knew there were still two wild cards who could destroy the agency, forfeit pensions, and ruin agency programs. Those wild cards were Lou Russell and Michael Stevens, an assumed name. As we will discuss, the emergence of either one speaking truthfully would be a huge body blow to the CIA, McCord's main object of protection. But the two together would be nuclear annihilation of the agency. Now let's go to John Dean. On March 23, 1973, Sirica was reading in open court McCord's accusatory letter directed at the White House. The White House had threatened his life, had tried to falsely blame the CIA for Watergate. Perjury was committed at trial. Dean had just recently been jousting over the past days with Nixon himself, the most noteworthy session occurring on March 21. Dean was in the spotlight after Gray's monumentally stupid and unnecessary uncovering of Dean's role going to the point of agreeing with the questioner suggesting Dean had lied when he told the FBI he did not know if Hunt still had an office in the White House. But the public flames fanned by the Post made Nixon fearful of appearing to hide the truth. Desperate, Dean had suggested to Nixon the cover-up guilt of Nixon's close aide, Dwight Chapin, bringing it close to the president, and that of Gordon Strahan, implicating Nixon's chief of staff, Haldeman, but all to no avail. To protect himself against Hunt's testimony, Dean also tried to get Nixon's approval of $1 million for Hunt. Nixon seemed to be agreeable, albeit a bit waveringly, but Dean had thereby gained a nugget of presidential cover-up liability to bargain with the prosecutors. So yes, his desperate pleading had gained at least one huge get-out-of-jail token for Dean. Dean knew, like McCord, that publicity about the CIA would implicate the escort service, which would get uncomfortably close to him. At some point, prosecutors would figure out he had destroyed Hunt's Hermes notebooks, the impact on Dean, which the Post had minimized in an attempt to focus on the White House, even though no, quote, topsiders, unquote, would have been named in the notebook, other than, by hearsay, Mitchell. But as Dean knew, Hunt's notebooks would nail Dean. As in the case of McCord, a strong or at least strengthened White House could come roaring back at Dean if either Russell or Stevens decided to spout off. Of course, Stevens was a danger mainly because of Russell, who could point to Stevens as corroborating proof of what Russell had to say. Dean had recognized this danger and had paid off Russell, it appears circumstantially, from his depredation of the White House safe. But Dean knew that if Russell stepped forward to blab, a Dean's value would depreciate we should bear in mind that at this point there was no special prosecutor yet and none in the offing, so no one with whom to bargain against the White House, at least no one who would readily accept what Dean had to sell. Hunt, as well as Martinez and Gonzalez, could testify that they thought Watergate was a lawful CIA mission, but at least for Hunt, it would not be wise to be out front on this for fear of CIA wrath and loss of his pension. Again, as in the case of Dean and McCord, Russell and Stevens could change Hunt's decision tree. The White House, after all, with strong public awareness of CIA involvement, could pardon Hunt with impunity as he awaited jail. After March 23, the Post reported favorably about McCord without a raised eyebrow over his contention that he thought Watergate to be about national security, but not about the CIA. 
Likewise, the Post was overjoyed at the prospect of a Dean deal with the prosecution, so it wished to protect him. But there was a crack in the door, and the CIA had withheld inculpatory documents from the committee while the Post hid what it certainly knew about Mullen's cover contract. Since the committee did not have the FBI's file, it was none the wiser. All of this, again, goes to the importance of Russell and Stevens. On May 1, 1973, the minority subpoenaed Russell, asking him to bring his phone and bank records, perhaps out of cleverness, perhaps because of his drunken lifestyle. Russell had no bank account, using friends to cash McCord's checks to him, and he likely did not have his own phone, either at his former shabby rooming house or at his upscale apartment paid by CIA-connected stockholder William Byerly. Woodstein certainly knew of the subpoena and of Russell's salience as a potential player. The Collins article in the Star News of October 11, 1972, was enough to give Woodstein knowledge, but Woodward also admits to meeting with Russell and Byerly at least twice in person. But the Post, in spite of the minority's interest in Russell and Woodward's close association with the committee lead investigator, Scott Armstrong, printed not a word about Russell or the committee's interest in him. This was not a minor omission. Just mentioning in bland terms that a McCord contractor was likely lurking in the building at the time of arrest would have raised questions that could not be answered by the discredited and jejune, quote, spying and sabotage, unquote, narrative to which the Post was still clinging. Perhaps the reporters had believed in the controlling force of that narrative framework in the fall of 1972, but knowing of the CIA defense plan by Hunt and the prosecution's blackmail theme, as well as the Mullen cover contract, Woodstein most certainly knew well by May of 1973 that the Segretti campaign had nothing to do with Watergate. Unfortunately, both for Russell and posterity, he had begun ruminating about writing a best-selling tell-all book. Not a great idea if the CIA is around and doesn't want you to do that. He was not as withholding as should be a man in his line of work, and it appears that there were several CIA sources hovering about him, including at least Byerly, Russell's prostitute girlfriend, who was associated with the CIA, and Tony Shimon, a secretary who was connected to her brother, who in turn was connected to the CIA. So Russell's loose talk put him potentially in the crosshairs. Now we must enter the realm of speculation, perhaps charitably elevating our discussion to educated inference. We know from Jim Hogan that Russell had been indiscreet with his book plans, but we can only speculate that these plans involve pointing to Michael Stevens, which Russell knew would seal the deal of a CIA Watergate operation. Stevens had seen McCord's CIA letter and had spoken directly to sources at the CIA, and Russell knew about Stevens. Russell stiff-armed the committee on May 9, 1973, sure to invoke new questions from the committee about his records, and in any case, questions about Watergate and his lurking that night, a gift to the minority from Collins and his Sterling article of October 1972. Please note that had Collins not printed this article, the minority might be in the dark about Russell at this point. Around this time, Stevens began receiving ominous calls from an unidentified gentleman threatening his life. Stevens, as any normal person would be, was frightened that the CIA would not take chances if it was suspicious of him. So Stevens did the wise thing. He fled to the FBI for protection, telling it the whole story. Did Stevens want a protective newspaper article? Or did the FBI astutely give him one to signal the CIA that it would be blamed should Stevens be harmed? 
We have talked in an earlier episode about the spectacularly revealing nuclear bomb reporting of Chicago Today on May 14 and 16, 1973, following Stevens' FBI interviews of May 12 and 14, 1973. Following those FBI reports and articles in the Chicago Today, Deep Throat had his dramatic brief meeting with Woodward in the garage on the night of May 16 and 17, 1973, where he warned, everyone's life is in danger. Let's go somewhere now that we have not visited in the prior 30 episodes. Basic morality. The Post had a clear and dire warning from the head of the FBI's investigation. But let's get serious. The warning was not meant primarily for the Post, no matter how Woodstein and Bradley took it. The lives in danger were of witnesses, not reporters. When Stevens' life was in danger, Chicago Today printed blockbusters, albeit articles limited to the Chicago area by the Post's failure to reprint. But the paper, Chicago Today, did the right thing, which also was doing its job of informing the public. So after the Chicago Today articles and Deep Throat's warning, the Post had in its hands a twofer. It could open a new, exciting frontier in the burgeoning, exciting Watergate story of CIA participation in the burglary and undescribed other illegal operations the agency wished to protect. And it could protect the lives of both Russell and Stevens, and perhaps others, who could relay Russell's involvement. But putting aside the protection of Russell for the moment, why wouldn't the Post report that a federal investigation had revealed that the CIA was threatening lives to protect against being outed in the Watergate operation and a number of other seemingly illegal operations? Yes, eventually Woodstein reported part of the story in dramatic, but as to the CIA, muffled implication, but only in April 1974, as Nixon was on his way out and solely for the purpose of selling books. But when the story could have done some good for society and for Russell and Stevens, the Post stayed silent. In short, it did not report the news. It culled out of this episode merely a few dramatic parts and then published them in a book without any real explanation of what it meant. As we discussed in an earlier episode, Russell was poisoned apparently through, quote, aspirin roulette, unquote, and the threat he posed died a warning. Stevens did not publicly testify, likely protected, as he should have been, by national security precautions. Because of his sensitive national security role, he could claim the right not to disclose anything, and the committee was likely to eagerly agree. In any case, we know we did not hear from Stevens in the hearings. Publishing the Stevens story, or for that matter, Deep Throat's terrified warning to the reporters, would have given minority senators a basis to question McCord. But there is more. Russell's friend, Detective John Leone, was badly shaken by Russell's death shortly after his poisoning on May 18th, clearly sensing its true provenance. Leon a D.C. veteran investigator, was scheduled to make a dramatic appearance with George H.W. Bush, then head of the Republican National Committee. He was to reveal the extent to which there had been for years rampant illegal wiretapping by both the Democrats and the CIA. But Leon never made it to the press conference. He, like Russell, died of a sudden heart attack, in his case, dying immediately. Bush, of course, canceled the press conference. Again, while the Post would have understood the context of Leon's death more than any media player, it chose to remain silent to its surrounding circumstances. So yes, the Post remained immorally silent through all of this, but also the New York Times was acting immorally, ridding itself of Watergate's most prized journalistic source, Deep Throat, for meaningless short-term gains. 
Mark Felt had leaked to John Crutzen of the New York Times that Daniel Ellsberg, then proceeding to his criminal trial in L.A., had been overheard electronically on what came to be known as the, quote, Kissinger wiretaps, unquote, targeting both prominent newsmen and Kissinger's own national security staffers. It was an impactful story, causing the dismissal of the Ellsberg prosecution and the revelation some highly controversial wiretaps. Oddly, Mark Felt soon admitted in print to being one of Crutzen's sources, although claiming he only confirmed what Crutzen already had known. Interim Director William Ruckelhaus confronted Felt and soon Felt resigned, causing a huge loss not only to the Post, but also to the New York Times, which was desperately trying to catch up to the Post on Watergate reporting. The Crutzen leaked by Felt reared its ugly head a year later when the special prosecutor learned from Donald Segretti that Crutzen has possessed a raft of FBI documents, at least one an original, and an FBI secretary sitting outside the FBI's executive suite had seen Crutzen emerging in May after the Ellsberg article with a briefcase bulging with documents. So Felt, now retired, was investigated for paying off Crutzen with stolen documents, Felt firmly denied all. Many, of course, suspected that Felt was guilty of the crime, but it was just not provable. And, of course, it was a minor crime. Coincidentally, Ruckelhaus had been my father's law partner in their small four-attorney firm in Indianapolis, which had at one time included Ruckelhaus's father, who hired my father, and John Jr., whom my father hired after John Sr.'s accidental death, and as well hired William Ruckelshaus. But why Felt had confirmed the leak, I never understood, nor did anyone else, until 2007. I was in Indianapolis on another case, had some time between meetings, and visited my father's old firm, in which he had hired my longtime buddy, Bill Hasbrook. Chatting with Bill, he asked me if I wanted to see Jack, that's how John Jr. was known, a wonderful guy, an aging lawyer who came to the office only sporadically. You still representing that rat fink felt Jack bellowed jockily when he sees me? Yes, I still represent Mr. Ratfink, I replied. Damnedest thing I ever heard, Jack continued. A New York Times guy calls Bill and tells him, you know, who leaked the Ellsberg story to me? Mark Felt. Bill confronted Felt and told him, don't let the door hit you on the ass as you leave. I was, of course, stunned but did not let on to Jack as we continued on. This meant to me that Crutzen got his documents from Ruckelhaus as a payoff for revealing Felt. Ruckelhaus had done the right thing, but to Crutzen, these were silver pieces of betrayal. Needless to say, I was shocked by this. An author who I liked personally, Max Holland, had written that Crutzen really did not tell or call Ruckelhaus, but rather it must have been Felt's betonoir William Sullivan disguised as Crutzen. This claim in the book leak is absurd and meant to protect Holland's source, Crutzen. I confirmed recently in a chat with Bill Ruckelhaus before he passed that indeed the caller claimed he was Crutzen, and Bill did not remember any distinct New England accent in the call. Of course, Crutzen thought there was gold in the Segretti story, so his 30 pieces of silver were counterfeit tin. He had burned a key source for nothing, that is to say the Segretti 302 documents, and ironically lost a chance to use Felt to catch up to the post. Woodstein's exploitation of Felt only for their commercial purposes, and Crutzen's exploitation of Felt's leak for his own purposes, his hoped-for stardom, strips all pretense from both the Post and the Times as being interested in truth without fear or favor. Felt proves this to be so much poppycock. Before we leave, a couple of ironies. The Post, on May 8, 1973, 
was announced by a Columbia University committee to be a winner of the 1972 Pulitzer Prize for its Watergate reporting. Meanwhile, with no life raft in sight from the post, Nixon had begun jettisoning all unnecessary occupants from his ship. With intense heat from the post, Nixon went literally overboard by throwing A.G. Richard Kleindienst off the ship, as well as other executives more criminally culpable. This was the biggest of all presidential blunders, perhaps an unforced error, perhaps more accurately an error forced by the Post's dishonest reporting. With Kleindienst gone, successor Elliot Richardson agreed with the Senate in his confirmation hearings to appoint a special prosecutor, at the time not required by law or regulation. With the Post's hiding of the roles of Russell and Stevens, including Russell's death, the CIA now had clear sailing. Post was part of the CIA's obstruction of justice, even if the Post, as a media player, bore no criminal liability. The only development that could at this point derail the CIA cover-up of the Post, which also protected the DNC, was disclosure of CIA documents which inculpated the agency to its bureaucratic eyeballs to the point of criminal liability. Thus far, the agency had wrongly withheld them. But what if by some chance these incriminating documents surfaced? Surely the Post would report on this fully and fairly, correct? But as we leave this episode, suffice it to say that by hiding Russell and Stevens after concealing Mullen, the salacious DNC talk, Hunt CIA defense, the prosecution's blackmail theme, Pennington and Bittenbender, the Post was in the process of completing its self-assigned job as the chief cover-up architect. Not, mind you, the pitiful, ignorantly executed White House cover-up pushed by Dean on the clueless superiors, but a cover-up of the true essence of Watergate. This, unlike the White House cover-up, was a highly skillful, intentionally executed cover-up, which promised fortune and lasting fame for those who executed it. All this assumes that incriminating CIA documents would not emerge a highly unlikely proposition. If they did emerge, showing definite proof of heavy CIA involvement in Watergate, would the Post report these documents truthfully? Tune in to our next episode of The Mysteries of Watergate. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.